All right. Hello. Welcome back to the show. My name is Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your spacefaring bird people speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This month, we're talking about Revelation Space, a novel by Alastair Reynolds. This was originally published in the UK in the year 2000, and then in the US the year after that, 2001. And that year is very important for my experience with this book. In the summer of 2001, I had just gotten out of the army, and I was working in the shipping and receiving room of a bookstore before I went back to college in the fall. And that meant that I was the one who opened up the box with the brand new, very shiny copies of Revelation Space. And this book just called to me like a siren. It's got a spaceship on the cover. And then when I cracked it open and discovered that the first few lines were about an archaeologist on an alien planet... I knew I had to have it. It felt like the book had been written just for me, for me personally, and at a time when I was having trouble adjusting to being a civilian again and needed a a fictional world to escape to for a little while. And since then, I have read a lot of Alastair Reynolds, but, but not everything, really probably only about half of his novels and actually none of his short stories, though until now, I should say too, it's been six years since I've actually read one of his books. So I've been really looking forward to getting to this one and was even starting to rub my hands together like a cartoon villain as we got closer to it on the big list of ATOS books. But I think that is enough preamble for this book. I think we should just jump right into Revelation Space. So, all right. The very first thing that we need to know about Revelation Space is that it's a space opera. And I will have more to say about this in the themes and motifs segment. But broadly speaking, what I mean by that is that it's a story that takes place in an interstellar civilization on a very large stage and with very high stakes. And before we get into the story itself, let's set that stage. Let's talk about the speculative world that Reynolds constructs here. So this story takes place in our future, and to be precise, it is the 26th century, and humanity has established a sprawling interstellar civilization thanks to engines that can get very close to the speed of light, if not actually uh, attaining it. It is also a civilization that is just replete with advanced digital technologies. Cybernetics is a big part of life now, and we meet people with varying degrees of technological implants. And computers are extraordinarily sophisticated. In fact, they're so sophisticated that artificial intelligence has sort of been achieved. And people are able to scan their consciousnesses into computer programs that can come pretty close to imitating the real thing. And computer programs can likewise just reside and be active inside human brains. Now, we don't get a count of how many human-inhabited worlds exist beyond Earth and beyond the solar system, but it seems to be a lot. This story takes place in two different star systems, it's totally dependent on experiences in a third, and it mentions a few others. And these human colonies have developed their own distinct cultures, even in really just the span of a few centuries, with new customs and new beliefs and with a variety of different relationships with technology. Some cultures are super into it and some are super opposed to it. And of course, most are somewhere in between. And Reynolds here also envisions a future in which these relationships with technology, whether that's digital technology or spaceships themselves, results in the the creation of broad factions within humanity. There are four of these that really come to matter in later books that Reynolds sets in this speculative world, but I'm just going to mention two right now. First are the conjoiners, and we don't actually meet them in this book, but they loom large in the background. 
And as the name suggests, right, these are people who have joined together. They have conjoined, uh, in this case, in a kind of neural network. And in short, back in the 22nd century on Mars, humans experimented with turning human brains into computers, and they created a massive human internet. And this supercomputer is actually what's responsible for devising the engines that make this interstellar civilization possible to begin with, these engines that can get very near the speed of light, uh, which are called light huggers, by the way, and I think that's a very cool name. Now, the faction that receives the most attention here in Revelation Space, though, are the Ultras, or Ultranauts. And these are people who live on the lighthuggers and make this interstellar civilization possible. Mostly, these people are merchants, but they do also provide commercial transportation and maybe also some other businesses as well. And ultra culture has a close relationship with technology, and it's really here that we see most of the, the cybernetics. And ultras even often have replaced some of their internal organs with machines or some kind of biotechnology. Ultras also have a strange relationship with the cultures of people who actually live on the planets. It's most people, of course. And this is because time passes differently for them. For one thing, relativity dictates that time passes more slowly on these ships as they are moving closer and closer to light speed. But also, the ultras make use of cryogenics during long voyages, and so they simply live longer from the perspective of absolute time. And what that means is that a single ultra-human can watch an entire civilization grow up and die in her own lifetime. And that's got to be a strange feeling. Okay, so that's everything I want to say about the human side of things. So let's go talk some aliens. There aren't actually that many aliens in this speculative world, and in fact, that's going to be something of a plot point later on. But at the start of this story, there are still two non-human civilizations, and both of them with names that are completely ascribed to them by humans. We don't know what they call themselves. And these are the names that describe what these peoples do. The first is the pattern jugglers, right? They juggle patterns. And these are sentient aquatic microorganisms that, very much like the conjoiners, have a network of consciousness. The pattern juggling itself refers to their ability to store the consciousnesses of individuals, and this does not depend on the species. So no matter what species you are, you can get your consciousness stored here by the pattern jugglers, and it gets stored within their network. And they have the ability to rewire the consciousnesses of anyone who enters the waters in which they live. And so ultimately what that means is that they can impart someone else's consciousness inside of you, or they can rewire your own persona in, in some way. So you're changed, or at least can be changed, after a, an encounter with the pattern jugglers. The second civilization are the Shrouders. And the Shrouders are even more mysterious than the pattern jugglers, because while they are known to exist... They can't really be reached or communicated with in any way because they live behind shrouds, right? That's where the name comes from. And in this case, shroud is a euphemism for living in an artificially restructured space-time that destroys any humans and probably any pattern jugglers too, but just certainly destroys any humans who try to enter it. Of course, this sort of thing has never stopped us from trying before. It doesn't now either. Many humans have actually tried to enter these shrouds. And this is where we can start to talk about the plot and the, the characters of Revelation Space. We're going to have three point of view characters throughout the, the course of this dense, I mean, very dense story. But let's start with the first, Dan Silvest. And let's start with his backstory, even though we don't actually get that until we're well into the second act of the book. Sylvester is a member of the wealthy aristocracy of a planet named Yellowstone. 
His father was an infamous scientist who was working on perfecting the ability to upload consciousnesses into computers as a kind of way of achieving immortality. And he killed a lot of people along the way to attempting to do this. But Sylvester also grew up interested in trying crazy things to expand human knowledge and human capabilities. And Sylvester had discovered that the reason people who tried to contact the Shrouders come back with adult brains is that the Shrouds perform a type of neural scan to see if the person should be allowed in. He also discovers that the pattern jugglers have the consciousness patterns of Shrouders stored inside their neural network. And so the solution to making contact with the Shrouders may simply be a matter of getting the pattern jugglers to make his brain resemble a Shrouders and fool this network. And so he tries that. And it doesn't completely fail, doesn't really succeed either, but it doesn't completely fail. He does manage to get past the first barrier and into what he calls revelation space, right? It's the name of the book, but nothing comes of it. And his companion who was with him here was killed during the attempt. Now, this is not insignificant, but it is not actually where the story begins. As I said already, the book opens with an archaeological excavation on a planet that is no longer inhabited. But a million years ago, there was an alien civilization here. As a bird-like people called the Amarantin. And by the time our story begins, it is already understood that the Amarantin went extinct all at once during something that the scholars are calling the event. And Dan Sylvest is one of these scholars. He's the head archaeologist, and he's also the leader of the human colony on this planet because he's really the one who has financed and organized the whole thing. Sylvest is obsessed with figuring out what happened to the Amarantin because he has a feeling that it could happen to humanity as well, unless they know how to stop it. But Sylvest is widely believed to be losing it as his obsession grows. And part of Sylvest's obsession is that he's jumped to some pretty wild conclusions about the Amarantin and about the event. Scholarly consensus believes that at the time of the event, the Amarantin were a pre-industrial civilization. But Sylvester believes, and, and really it is just an inference for which he has no solid evidence that other scholars, you know, fictional scholars in this book or other scholars here in our real world would, uh, would buy into. But even without this evidence, Sylvester believes that the Amarantin had actually developed spaceflight. The excavation that Sylvester is working on now is just beginning. And eventually, and, and this is years and years later, it is going to prove him right. And it's also going to show that the Amarantin had a particular fixation with a particular feature of their solar system. And this is a planet that is orbiting a nearby dead neutron star. And you can count on our story ending up there, of course. But we do have some other characters we need to meet first. Okay, so our second point of view character is Ilya Volyova, an officer aboard an ultra merchant vessel that is called Nostalgia for Infinity. Uh, it's a great ironic name, which is a standard thing for ultra ships. This is a part of their uh, their culture's characteristics. And the ship has two peculiar features. The first is that its captain is infected with a cybernetic virus, and he's even been put into cryogenic sleep until his crew can find a cure. And that's actually the mission that the ship is on right now. Find a cure for the captain. But the other peculiar feature is that they're equipped with serious business weapons that were made by some long-extinct galactic civilization, and they found these weapons just randomly on an asteroid somewhere. And the special thing about these weapons is that they need to make a neural connection with a person who can control them. And the ship's most recent gunnery officer went insane when a computer program called Sunstealer got inside of his brain. And so 
the Nostalgia for Infinity is on course for the planet Yellowstone in order to take care of these two things, right? They've got to find a new gunnery officer and also find a doctor who can help their captain. And as for the doctor, they have someone specific in mind, someone who actually has helped them out before. It's Dan Silvest. And we'll return to that in a moment. But for now, we need to get to our third point of view character, Anna Kuri. Corey grew up in yet another planetary system where she was a soldier. Really, everyone there is a soldier. They've been fighting a war for over a generation. And there was a serious business space accident and then a serious business space mishap that brought her unconscious to Yellowstone, but left her husband behind light years away. And when she woke up, Corey was faced with the fact that she would never get her life back. And so she went to work for an assassination company. And Right, you can see where this is going. Uh, She's going to be the new gunnery officer for the Nostalgia for Infinity. But there is more to it than that. Uh, Corey gets herself hired as the new gunnery officer because she's actually secretly working for someone else in her capacity as assassin. And, right, who's the target? Well, it's Dan Silvest, and, and we'll get to why in just a little bit. So the Nostalgia for Infinity arrives at Yellowstone looking for Silvest, only to discover that he's in another SAR system. And... So now they head there to get him. And there's a rather long and complicated subplot during this journey about political coups on this planet that I'm I'm just skipping over because in the end, it doesn't actually impact the main plot that much. And we'll have more on that later. Now, there is a little bit more to this backstory than that Sylvester has helped heal the captain before. The reason he's been able to do this is that he has an AI simulation of his father, who was actually the real medical expert. This is the the guy who was trying to upload everyone's consciousnesses into a computer so they could achieve immortality. And we'll talk more about this in the next segment. But what it boils down to is that in order for Sylvester to heal the captain, he has to let his father's AI simulation take over his, his body. And this is a painful experience for him. And it's one that he doesn't want to go through again. And since he's not willingly going to do this again, this is where the serious business planet-destroying alien weapons come into the story. The crew threatens to start leveling civilian settlements if Sylvester doesn't cooperate. And so, of course, he does. Well, he sort of cooperates anyway. You see, what he's actually done is hide some nuclear weapons in his cybernetic eyes, which he uses to counter-blackmail the crew once he's aboard the ship. And what he wants, actually, is a ride to the planet Cerberus that is orbiting this neutron star so we can see what's up with it and why the Amarantin were so focused on it, so obsessed with it before the event. And this situation, right, the situation in which everyone is trying to kill everyone else unless they get what they want, all of this prompts a bit of coming clean by everyone. And this is really where we get a ton of the the backstory as well. So let's start with Corey's employer, right, the person who has hired her to kill Sylvester. Up until now, she's been a, a really just a mysterious figure known only as the Mademoiselle. And the Mademoiselle had placed an AI copy of her persona inside Curry's mind in order to help her with the mission of killing Dan Sylvester. But Volyova has figured out that the Mademoiselle is actually the other person who went to visit the Shrouders with Sylvester a very long time ago. Uh, this is then someone who has been presumed dead for decades. They also discovered that this Sunstealer AI that killed the last gunnery officer, and also has been slowly taking over the ship, got into the ship in the first place the last time that Sylvester was aboard, and so probably that's where it came from. And in short, what they discover is that Sylvester came back from the Shroud with the Sunstealer AI embedded in his mind, and this is going to turn out to be bad for everybody, for all of humanity. 
And here's why it's bad, right? Here's the backstory. The galaxy really has turned out to be way less populated than it should be. And indeed, the Amarantan are not the only extinct civilization that humans have found in just the five centuries that they've gotten out of the solar system. In in short, really, the galaxy is something of a graveyard when it really should be teeming with complex life. I mean, teeming with it. And there's a reason for this. About a billion years ago, the galaxy was teeming with complex life and teeming with a number of interstellar civilizations. And those civilizations entered into a galactic war that lasted a million years and was extremely destructive as a million year war would be. And in the end, the only people to survive this galactic war was a species that had evolved into a form of machine life during the course of the war itself. And in the aftermath of this war, this machine civilization set about making sure that this type of war, or war on this scale, or really any kind of war, uh, this war, by the way, is called the Dawn War, uh, they set out to make sure that the Dawn War was the last war by just preventing sentient life from developing in the first place. To do this, they set up machines all over the galaxy that are designed to detect sentient organic life and then to utterly eradicate it. And, of course... This is exactly what happened to the Amarantan. You see, the machine life, and we'll, we'll call them inhibitors, the inhibitors had placed one of their inhibiting devices inside this system. It's the planet Cerberus, which is entirely artificial. It's not actually a planet at all. It's a machine. And when the Amarantan developed spaceflight and investigated Cerberus, the inhibitor device destroyed them and made their planet just totally incapable of supporting life at all. Now, this didn't actually kill all of the Amarantin, because, in fact, a group of them had already left the system and settled elsewhere. But the inhibitor device found them anyway, and it did, in fact, eradicate many of those, too, many of this Amarantin colony. But the handful of survivors devised a way to prevent the inhibitor device from finding them again, and that way is the Shrouds, right? The the Shrouders are actually the descendants of the Amarantin. And so what's happened here is that when Sylvester tried to visit the Shrouders, the descendants of the Amarantan, he was infected with Sunstealer, which had been trying to steer him to Cerberus for decades. And the reason that Sunstealer wants Sylvester to go to Cerberus is just to see if the inhibitor device there is still on. Basically, the idea is that if all of humanity gets destroyed, then the Amarantan will know that they have to keep hiding behind the Shrouds. And if the device isn't activated, then they can come out. But of course, this plan has a really high chance of killing an entire species, and also possibly of bringing the shrouds to the intention of the inhibitors. So the Mademoiselle, who is also now an Amarantan agent, is trying to prevent this from happening. Okay, so that is a lot of plot and a lot of backstory. I mean, it's a backstory that literally goes back a billion years. So how does this all resolve? Well, Sunstealer does indeed take over the ship and help Sylvester get to Cerberus. But once there, and, and really once deep inside the artificial planet, Sylvester realizes that Sunstealer's plan is not good for humanity. And so he detonates the nukes that he's got in his eyes and just blows the whole thing up in a, a grand self-sacrifice. But the book ends with we the readers unsure if this self-sacrifice was in time. Right? We don't know if the inhibitor device scanned Sylvester and was able to alert other inhibitor devices. There's a very high chance that it was. And that is something that we'll have to find out in the next book of the series. 
All right. That was a long recap. It's probably the longest that I've, I've done on the show, though I think I may actually have said that a few times recently. But I think it is also fair to say that Revelation Space is also the longest book that we've read so far. And there was a lot of world building that we needed to get through before we even got to the plot. But we did it. We got through all of that plot, all of that backstory. So let's talk some themes and motifs. And here, there are two topics I want to get into. One of them is the question of how we define human, or or maybe how we define person. Uh, This is a big but subtle part of the, the book. But I really want to start by talking about genre again. And in this case, I want to talk about space opera. I know that at the very start of this podcast, right, of this entire show of ATAS, which was a very long time ago now, I mean, literally years ago, uh, I know that way back at the start, I said explicitly that I'm opposed to gatekeeping and that I want to have a broad and, and welcoming definition of speculative fiction and that I was not going to spend a lot of time talking about different subgenres and trying to classify books other than as a shorthand way to give you a sense of what a particular book is like. And I stand by that. But genres do exist, and and writers often are intentionally working within and and also intentionally playing with the conventions of particular genres. And we talked about that sort of thing all the way back at the beginning of Atas with Le Guin's magnificent novel, The Beginning Place. And in this case, the way in which Reynolds plays with and also updates the conventions of space opera is, I think, a real selling point of the book. And I mean literally a selling point, right? It's invoked in two of the five blurbs of the first edition copy that I have here. In one of these blurbs, Jonathan Strayan, who's a really great science fiction critic, uh, describes this novel as a refreshing and entertaining reconsideration of some of the genre's oldest tropes, quite possibly the space opera of the year. Watch for it at awards time. And in another blurb, Gary Wolf, who is a great science fiction scholar, says this. He says, Reynolds is the next writer to watch in the resurrection of the conceptually intelligent space opera. So let's just start with what space opera even is. The phrase space opera itself first appeared in 1941 in a a pretty famous essay by the SF writer Wilson Tucker, and it was meant to be derisive when he used it. He was actually criticizing stories that he labeled space opera, and what he had in mind here were action stories or adventure stories that simply take place in space, that just happen to take place in space, but, but aren't themselves necessarily engaged in the literature of ideas, which for Tucker, then, is the defining element of science fiction, right? For him, science fiction is the literature of ideas. And the the term itself, the term space opera, is obviously a riff on the television soap opera, which itself is a term derived from the idea that those stories are all about relationship melodrama akin to the stories in romantic operas, uh, as opposed to epic operas. Uh, You know, romantic operas like Bizet's Carmen, Puccini's La Boheme, which, of course, goes on to become the musical Rent, or Donizetti's Elixir of Love. I'm a big opera fan, so I could just list operas all day, but I won't, though those are some of my favorites. And that is the opera part of soap opera. And the soap part comes from the soap companies whose paid advertisements were the commercial driver for the art form, right? It was how the creators made money telling these stories. And soap operas were considered an extremely low form of entertainment, right? No one working on them, from writers to producers to actors, really wanted to be there if they could get a job working in film or evening television, uh, maybe even a, a, a gig on stage that would pay as well as this. The stories were just plot, 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 without much substance. And that's what Tucker was saying about space opera as well, right? It was meant to be derisive. 
And these types of stories really dominated during the pulp phase of science fiction in the 1920s, the the 1930s, and, and into the 1940s. And a lot of writers were able to make a living essentially writing westerns that just happened to be set in outer space. And this includes writers such as Edmund Hamilton and Doc Smith, who wrote hundreds of stories about galactic empires, uh, about interstellar wars, space sheriffs, also about space heists, and especially alien invasions. But just because Wilson Tucker put a derisive label on this and everyone was talking about it, just because he did that, it did not mean that this form went away. In fact, frankly, people love these stories. And I'll say right now that I think Tucker was wrong to be so dismissive of this form. Paul Anderson wrote some pretty awesome space opera in the 1950s. Uh, Heinlein did too. And almost everyone loves Star Wars, right? Or, you know, at least the original trilogy anyway. And Star Wars is a great example of space opera. It's easy to dismiss Star Wars as just laser swords and space wizards, but in fact it deals with some serious questions about what it means to be evil, what it means to be good, whether we are shaped more by our nature or by our nurture, and whether we really have free will to to make our own choices. It's also all about courage and sacrifice. It's about families and friendship. I mean, you know, it's pretty good, right? Star Wars is pretty good. And I think this is true of the best of the pulp space opera as well, that these action and adventure stories are stories that are more than just plot with spaceships. Still, a lot of them are quite bad. And in the 1940s and the 1950s, there was a real move away from these types of big, sprawling space adventures and big space war stories. And famously, in fact, right, the the back cover of the magazine Galaxy included an injunction against space opera or uh, against the space western, as it was called sometimes. And this was some serious gatekeeping, I will say. But in the 1970s, science fiction saw a reinvention of the space opera. And this is now called the new space opera. And this really began with M. John Harrison's seminal novel, The Centauri Device. But then this really got going in the late 1980s with the really just hot arrival on the scene of Ian Banks's culture novels, which we've not done on ATOS yet, but I'm sure we will get to them someday if that's something our patrons are into. I mean, you know, if you're into space opera. And this is where Revelation Space and Alistair Reynolds fit in, right? They are part of the new space opera. And what characterizes the new from the old here in the intervening decades between the pulp era and the 1980s is that Britain lost its empire. America lost the Vietnam War, and the global economy was seriously disrupted by stagflation and by the removal of the gold standard in the 1970s. And so, in short, really, we could summarize this by saying that the real world had become a darker place, and therefore also did our vision of what an interstellar civilization would be like. Space adventures were no longer an optimistic wagon train to the stars, right, as Gene Roddenberry had pitched Star Trek, but they became junkyards in space, which, as Paul McCauley has described it. And the, the civilizations of the new space opera feel lived in, and often even a little worn out. And we can see that in Star Wars, for sure, right? But equally important are the morally gray characters. Totally gone now are the white hats and black hats, and instead, now we have complex characters who are just struggling to make the best of their circumstances on a stage that they actually haven't set themselves. And and maybe here we can also think of Babylon 5 as well. In the new space opera, there is also way more emphasis on hard science, on technology, and also technical writing. And, And this is really no surprise, right? As the Second World War, the Cold War, the space race, and plastics had reshaped how we use tools as a a species and also really reshaped how our tools define us, define our culture. 
And I think it's important to note that this genre, the, the new space opera, was growing up at the exact same time as cyberpunk. And they really share some assumptions about the role of technology in the future. And this is all over Revelation Space, where machine life is at the core of the plot, right? Our our main characters are all equipped with cybernetic implants that they take for granted, and the central figure of the story is a semi-sentient uploaded consciousness. And this is a great lead into the other topic that I want to discuss here, though I do know that this episode is running quite long already, so I'll try to make this brief. And that other topic is the question of how we define human or person, And I'm not really sure that Reynolds, at least in this book, I'm not really sure that Reynolds is coming down hard on a set of criteria that we could use to determine if someone is a human or or not, or if someone is a person or not. But he does raise the question, and then he illustrates the problem for us by giving us several examples of characters who might be people or might not be people. I think it's clear that Corey and the Ultras qualify as people even though they have cybernetic implants, right? Even though some of them are more machine now than human. And even though Corey has another consciousness running around inside her mind, right? I think even with all of that, we still think of these characters as persons. But if we're thinking about Corey, then we have to ask if the organic computer program that is a copy of the consciousness of the Mademoiselle is also a person. It seems to have sentience and will, and it also communicates with Corey. It adapts to changing circumstances. So is it a person? And if it isn't a person, why not? We can ask this very same question, and in fact, with more discomfort, I think. right? We can ask this same question about the simulation of Calvin, of, of Sylvester's father. Calvin has the same attributes as the Mademoiselle program, but he also has the capacity to take control of a body and to exercise agency in the material world. And so Calvin possesses even more attributes that we think pertain to sentient persons. But still, does this actually make him a person? And if not, then why not? And that's the challenge that Reynolds is posing to readers here. And it's a challenge that our own society is going to be faced with. I mean, it might not happen in my lifetime, but certainly in my students' lifetimes, right? We are going to have to establish a set of criteria for who or for what qualifies as a person that will account for AIs and maybe even for uploaded consciousnesses. And so asking these questions, right, getting us to think about them and to try to answer them, or or at least to to understand why doing that is a difficult task, this is the important business of science fiction. And Reynolds does an awesome job of this. I mean, just a, a fantastic job of this. And this is the hallmark of the new space opera, right? It is space opera that still tells stories of action and adventure, whether that's interstellar war or space heists. And it does all of that on a massive stage. But it now also draws on the traditions of other forms of science fiction as well, and it does this in order to pose meaningful questions about our lives, about our societies, about our identities, and and even about the nature of reality itself. All right, so I really enjoyed Revelation Space, and I especially enjoyed thinking about it inside the context of this long trajectory of space opera. But I do want to talk about some weaknesses before I address some of the other things that I did enjoy about it, some of the other strengths, and then we'll get out of here and on to the next book. For one thing, this book is way too long. It could be actually about 80% of the length that it is and not lose a thing. In fact, I'd say it could stand a trim even a little bit more than that. And most glaringly for me is the political plot on Resurgum, the the planet that the Amaranthan are from. And, And indeed, I didn't even talk about this in the recap because it doesn't actually connect with anything else and it has no consequences. 
As the book opens, Sylvester is the leader of the colony here on Resurgum. But then there's a coup, and then there's another coup, and none of it actually amounts to anything. None of it is what motivates Sylvester to check out Cerberus. All of this could go, and it is about 100 pages of the book. All of this could go, and it could be replaced by a much tighter plot that simply focuses on Sylvester as archaeologist. I just don't think we gain anything from Sylvester as politician. And another reader might counter my criticism here by saying that, well, all of that serves to build up the speculative world. But I don't really think it does. There is a lot of world building in this book, and and as far as I'm concerned, that's really one of its great strengths. But most of that world building is about the Society of the Ultras, it's uh, about the world of Yellowstone, and then also about the backstory of the Amarantin. And none of that is dependent on or really even connected to the hundred pages of political drama on Resurgum that frankly just feels like a distraction to me. So that's my chief complaint. And I think now let's just talk about some more of the strengths of this book. As I said, world building is definitely one of them. I mean, Reynolds is a master of this, and he has constructed uh, an interstellar civilization that is rich and complex. And then he's put it in the context of a billion year history of other complex interstellar civilizations. It's a real feat. And, And frankly, he's only just getting started in Revelation space, right? There is much more to come as he develops this speculative setting that he's got. But it's not just the world that is rich and complex, right? It's the the characters, too. Everyone we meet, or at least our various point-of-view characters, has several motivations that drive their actions, and sometimes those internal motivations even come in conflict with each other, so our characters are internally conflicted. And these characters, too, are really grounded in Reynolds' speculative world, right? They don't just feel like Britain's circa 2000 transposed 500 years in the future, they really feel like the products of their own time and their own place, even if we can see that that time and place has grown out of our own, as we talked about in the previous segment. And and really, I have to say that even more than the inclusion of hard science, I think the new space opera is characterized by this shift toward rich worlds and rich characters that is the hallmark of science fiction as pioneered by people such as Ursula Le Guin and Gene Wolfe in the 1960s and the 1970s. And so, in short, right, the, the new space opera is a genre that has come to value good writing. Uh, And to go along with this, Reynolds has some excellent prose. And I I do want to take a few more minutes just to give you some examples of it, because it's a real strength and it's a real feature of the book. The first passage comes from Sylvester's approach to Cerberus at the end of the book. I'll just read it to you. On descent toward Cerberus Bridgehead, the suit informed him, voice pleasantly bland and drained of import, as if this were a perfectly natural destination. Graphic scrolled over the suit's faceplate window, but his eyes could not focus on them properly so he told the suit to drop the imagery straight into his brain. Then it was much better. The fake contours of the surface, huge now, filling half the sky, were lined in lilac, their sinuous mock geology rendering the world more folded and brain-like than ever before. There was very little natural illumination here, save for the twin beacons of dim ruddiness of Hades, and much further away, Delta Pavonis itself. And what I love most about this passage is the focus on the character's experience of this new planet that no one has ever seen before, rather than merely on the objective fact of this planet. And I also like how seamlessly Reynolds integrates technology into this description, which is itself precise, if not overly technical. And there's just some good wordsmithing here, right? Sinuous mock geology is a great phrase. I wish I had thought of it. But okay, I'm going to read one more passage, and this one is actually quite long, but I think this passage illustrates one of the techniques that Reynolds uses to build his world, and it's the technique that I think he's best at. 
Once, a star with a mass 30 or 40 times heavier than Earth's sun had reached the end of its nuclear-burning lifetime. After several million years of profligate energy expenditure, the star had exploded as a supernova, and in its heart, tremendous gravitational pressure had smashed a lump of matter within its own Schwarzschild radius until a black hole had been formed. The black hole was so named because nothing, not even light, could escape from its critical radius. Matter and light could only fall into the black hole, thereby engorging it towards greater mass and greater attractive force, a vicious circle. A culture arose that had use for such an object. And this passage goes on to talk about that culture, but what I want to point out here about how Reynolds operates is that he writes about spacefaring cultures in terms of their environment, including their space environment. He really writes about cultures as a response to the material world in which they live, and everything that he does here is grounded in the material and the scientific realities. And also in this passage, I think you get something of a taste for how Reynolds incorporates hard science into his sprawling adventure story. And if you haven't read the book along with us, if you've just been listening to the show and you've been on the fence about Alastair Reynolds, I mean, given the massive time commitment that goes into reading these uh, gigantic books that he writes, I hope this example of his prose and his world building will be uh, helpful for you in making that decision if you want to dive into them or not. But on that note, I'm going to bring this review to a close. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and the motifs and also about the strengths and the weaknesses that I've focused on here. And I'd be especially interested in talking about the criteria that we might use to determine what constitutes a person. This is going to be important for us, and our forum can be a place where we do that. So, all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next month, we're going to be returning to the fantasy genre with our very first role-playing game novel. Uh, this is a huge part of fantasy publishing, as you know. And this is going to be the very first Dragonlance book, Dragons of Autumn Twilight by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Uh, this is a book that means a lot to me. It also won our RPG novel vote on Patreon, so I'm very excited about this one. But... Also, I am more than a little nervous to revisit this book for the first time in 30 years and see if it holds up. But until next month, until Dragons of Autumn Twilight, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. <laughs>